0: Okay, if you would, open up the book of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 5. I mean, excuse me, verse, chapter 11. It's been four weeks since I stood here. Pick up where we left off. Chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Luke 11, 5 through 13. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for I have a friend of mine who has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks And to the one he knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Father, I ask for the work, the moving, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. As He, Father, is so apt to do, to take the written Word of Scripture and to apply it to minds. Not only at times hardy, oh, made this morning, He softened our hearts <laughs> to the glory of the Savior Jesus. I pray, Amen. Coming to the wonderful truth. Of God's sovereignty, of His sovereign will over and in all things and all events, often leads many Christians into unbiblical, seemingly logical, <laughs> and unbiblical conclusions. For example, God's sovereign, right? Without beginning without end, omniscient, he knows all things, there's nothing that's ever going to surprise him. Not only that, has he not ordained the beginning from the end? Therefore, why bug him? Why ask him to act in particular ways in my particular life? Because really, it's not going to do anything because he has predetermined what's going to happen. You ever struggle with that? Jesus destroys that thinking. He says in our text, if you draw that conclusion from the truth of God's absolute sovereignty over all things, then you do not understand the Christian life. Then you do not properly understand God's sovereignty over all things. In our text, Jesus has some things to teach us. So you there in Luke 11. We're starting with verse 5. But remember, the beginning of this section goes back to the beginning of the chapter where he's with his disciples and one of them said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And then we get the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And he gives this outline, this content of what to pray. The vertical, the horizontal. Pray, Father, hallow, make holy, set apart the glory of your name in the earth and in me and my family. Let your reign, your kingdom come. Oh, Supply our daily needs. Forgive us our sins. Oh, please work in us so that we are forgiving others. Protect us spiritually. So he gives the content. See, he's not done yet. Look at verse 5. And, Luke says, and He said to them. He goes on. So, as important and as central as the Lord's Prayer is and has been for 2,000 years in the church, by itself, it still leaves unanswered. How do we pray? In what manner do we take these requests and approach God. After all, He's King. So, is there a particular protocol we're supposed to follow? Like if we were at Buckingham Palace and you're going to meet Queen Elizabeth? They're going to instruct you what to do and what not to do in front of royalty. Or maybe we should be careful not to bug God too much and irritate Him, wear Him out, Well, hey, I asked him for him to do such and such. That's good enough. He knows. He hadn't forgotten. Is that how you think? I sat on the couch in front of my Bible, opened it up, said, God, please fill me with your spirit. Waited two minutes. Didn't happen. Okay. Close it up and go on my way for the rest of the day. Okay, see, lest we come up with all kinds of crazy, unbiblical ideas like those, Jesus tells us a parable to show us how we should pursue God. Starting with verse 5. Now just set up the culture in which he's speaking. A couple of things. Unlike us, in first century Palestine, their house is not constantly filled with food. And in the middle of the night, you go open a refrigerator. Or you have freezers. They don't have an AM, on the corner, 24-hour grocery store. They bake bread. Every day. Fresh bread. Sometimes some people have some left over. A lot of times they don't. Another cultural given in first century Palestine. Unlike us, even though I used to let Sergio in at midnight. When visitors come and they're traveling, they're on foot, they got their animals in, they show up at your house, you open the door, you let them in, you give them bed, and you give them food. Okay. So here, this guy in the story has got a problem. He's got these two cultural uh, things. One is this kind of like taboo. It's kind of like, really, if you have a conscience, hard to go bang on your neighbor's door at midnight. Say, please give me some bread to feed them. So his choice is, will he go through the uncomfortableness of that or will he just chicken out and not have any food to feed his guest and be a horrible host? See, in this parable that we're going to read, Jesus in effect is saying to the disciples and to every one of us Christians, which one of you has the nerve to wake up his neighbor and his whole family at midnight in order to ask and get what you need. Feel it as I read it, starting with verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, because... A friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And Jesus says, and this guy will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, locked. And my children are in bed. You know how that is, right parents? Oh, They're asleep. I cannot get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up because he's grumpy, (laughs) to give you anything just because you're his friend, but because you won't stop pestering him. That's impudence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. So here's the guy. Who is it? It's Isaac. What do you want? I need some bread. i got some people to come over to my house. You're nuts. Go away, man. It's a one-room house, okay? Everyone's on the floor on this big old mat. The kids are asleep. To get up, you'd have to remove the bar and the door and make noise, and it's just, go away. (laughs) That takes a lot of nerve to do that to your friend, to your neighbor. And that's the point. Verse 5, see it? Which one of you who has a friend will go irritate him at midnight like that because of your need is so great. So so this guy, according to Jesus, finally he realizes he ain't going away, Isaac so he says the fastest way to get to sleep is to get up yeah they might wake up family might wake up give him what he needs and then he'll leave and we can finally go back to bed and that is what Jesus means for us to focus on as he says in verse 8 I tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend yet because of his impudence he will rise, finally give in, and give him whatever he needs. So, at midnight, the relationship here is a little strained. But Jesus makes this point. The guy got what he came for. He's talking about prayer. He got it because of his, this is helpful, right? His impudence. Yeah, okay. Or the King James, we use that every day, right? His importunity. It just means his persistence. The Greek word here, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. The lexicons essentially say this word is this combination of boldness and shamelessness. The man got what he wanted, in other words, because of sheer shameless nerve. What's your point, Jesus? His point is, disciples, when you pray, be like that. Be bold. Don't let any type of cultural shame, I mean I shouldn't approach God this way, this persistently. Don't let that Come into play with your needs. Do you see it there in the text? Don't don't misread the parable. The parable is not in order to compare the grumpy friend at midnight with God. That's not the point at all. The point is to compare the friend who needs the bread. With the disciples, with us. He's saying, when you pray, Father, hallow your name, let your kingdom come, give us our daily needs, forgive my sins. He says, Be persistent, be shameless in it. That's the point of the parable. It's not about God and this grumpy neighbor. God's never grumpy. He never sleeps. He doesn't get woken up. His point is, this guy's going to get what he needs because of his persistence. With his sinful friend who's begrudgingly given it. How much more if you're persistent with your father who is never begrudging, is utterly willing, will give you? What you come for. Okay, now having made that point in his story, Jesus now applies it very directly in verses nine and ten. Okay, there's the parable. He made his point and he goes on and he says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock And knock. And knock. And it will be open to you. For or because everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. So, Jesus says that the lesson we are to learn from the parable is to be a person who prevails ongoingly. In prayer, And that really comes out with the tenth of the three verbs he uses. It's all three are present tense in the Greek, which not only carries time of action in Greek, it's got this emphasis of kind of action, which is continuous, ongoing. Jesus says... Got the parable? So disciples. This is how you pray. Go on asking. Go on seeking. And go on and on knocking. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, dead now, pastor in London, 50s, 60s, 70s, just nails the core of what Jesus is saying here when he writes, quote, The importance of this element of persistence cannot be exaggerated. You find it not only in biblical teaching, but also in the life of all the saints. The most fatal thing in the Christian life is to be content with passing desires. If we really want to be men of God or women of God, if we really want to know Him and walk with Him and experience those boundless blessings which He has to offer, we must persist in asking Him for them day by day. He goes on. We have to feel this hunger and thirst for righteousness and then we shall be filled. And that does not mean that we are filled once and forever. We go on hungry and thirsting. End quote. In our text, the point is that Jesus is not calling for mere formal prayer. Got it right? Say the words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He is calling Also, for a particular attitude in our praying. It's baseball season, little league baseball season. And if you don't know it and you got a bunch of kids, it's about the snack bar. There's a difference. Dad, can I please have a dollar to go get some more candy? Not how you do it. And Jesus said, don't do be indifferent like that. Be like the kid. Please get him at a dollar. I want to get a what are those suck pops? Ring pop. Okay, yeah, we uh, yeah yeah. He says pester seek plead, keep doing it. Okay, why? Let's just think theologically for a moment. The Christian life at its core is clear in Galatians, clear in the book of Romans, clear throughout Jesus. It, it is, you don't start by faith and then, okay, now I'm up to it. Okay, I did faith now. I, I believe in Jesus. Now I'm about working. <laughs> Are you so foolish? I'm going by faith and you think you're now going to be perfected by works. No, 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 no. Faith today, tomorrow, forever. It is faith is at the core of the Christian life, meaning walking by heart of trusting. That's what faith means. Trusting Him. Trusting His promises. Like the promise we have here, in myriad of them in the Bible. Faith is, you said it. I'm holding to it. Therefore, you, Father, said, pray, hallow your name. I know that's your will. Okay. Again, hallow your name. Start with me. May your name be lifted up and seen more perfectly for what it is. It's holy through my life, through my family's life, through my church's life. Oh, may you hallow your name and my unbelieving neighbors save them. Let your kingdom come. It's your will, I know. And you keep asking him. Because that persistence points to the essence of your faith. If you don't believe he needs it, you won't keep asking him. Jesus says, don't stop. Let me say it this way. The passion we see that Jesus tries to lay out for us is because that passion points to what's happening or not happening in our hearts toward God but I don't feel like talking with God and enjoying Him. Exactly. That's why Jesus says, Ask! Go on asking. Go on knocking. And as you obey Him, you will find your heart starting to mirror that passion. Praying. Keeping on. As the old saints used to say, pray until you pray. Through, so often that takes sweat, time, singing, crying, persistence, and amazingly, down the road, doors open. Not because you earned it. Not, look, my knuckles are all bruised. Look, God, aren't I great? Not at all. It's because your bruised knuckles point to the faith in your heart. Your reliance, your desperateness, to whom else shall I go? And that essence of faith is so pleasing to Him. This is the way Jesus prayed in His earthly journey. You remember we saw already in Luke Luke said he never slept that night. He stayed up all night praying. Well, what's he doing? Saying the rosary? I, just, I don't know how many differing gyrations differing people do or what Jesus did, but it's just hard for me to think that he just sat on a rock real quietly all night. I think there's a reason too why he got away from everybody. Anyone looking at me? He was pouring out His heart. This was the night before He named the twelve apostles. Later in Luke, in the garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus is asking, seeking, knocking, that kind of praying produces in Him that night sweat. Like drops of blood falling from His body. So, I, look. I think the larger the Christian groups, there's some kind of protocol. It just seems wise at times. But when you're with your one special friend or two, or, or and particularly by yourself, I think there's a place to get rid of being tamed. Just be real. ask where are your emotions what really do you want to be he knows everything anyway pour it out as a believer and as he says keep going you remember Hannah we named one of our kids after her She was desperate. She's barren. She wants a child. And there's Eli, the high priest, and Hannah would come to the tabernacle and she'd pray. Something about Eli says, This woman's drunk. I think it means she wasn't merely just going like that. Chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, starting with verse 14. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul to the Lord. David in praying, worship praying, one day, was so thrilled with God, decided to dance publicly. Embarrassed his wife. She's very angry about it. No more kids for her. But there's something about bold shamelessness there. But I gotta still think that Hebrews chapter five. Verse 7 is still the best model we have. Where the Holy Spirit says through the writer, quote, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who is able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or his piety. And I don't think that means because he sat in a particular way. It means because his praying matched his heart. Now I don't know. What the, I can't imagine what that means to be sinlessly praying. There's our model. Now Jesus isn't done. He gets more clear in verses 11 to 13. So, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? The uh, obvious answer is no one. Or if he asks for an egg, you'll give him a scorpion? Obviously, no one. If you then... Who are evil. Yeah, we're all broken and sinful human beings. Except for Jesus. If you then, who are evil, <laughs> you know how to give good gifts to your children. The point he makes is it's so crystal clear because it's so ludicrous. Of course we're not gonna love our kids, we're protect our kids. Okay? Got it? And look how sinful you are. How much more, then, will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's His point. The how much more. It's an argument from lesser to greater. We can all relate, mothers and fathers, and even if you're not common sense, we can all relate. Of course, yes, I'm not going to give him a scorpion. He wants you to take this into the prayer closet with you. How much more then will God, your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, give you not just good things, The Holy Spirit. See, notice, He didn't just say, as you come and you ask for more and more candy and ice cream and all that, well, God would just, you know, of course He's going to give whatever you want. You wouldn't do that. He says, as you know how to give good things to your children. Implication, God knows how to give you exactly what you need, what is good for you. And this is where it really bugged me, looking at the text this week. Why it just seemed, out of the blue, come on, the flow is, you know how to give good things, you ask, God knows how to give good things to you. And out of the blue, He says, He'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Why is that? I just couldn't follow the logic and just working through that. How does it relate to the rest of the passage of knocking and keeping and going on? So, let's work slowly through it. See, the flow is be persistent. Keep on. Keep on. Asking. Seeking. Knocking. Don't give up. Why? Because God, your Father, much more than you earthly fathers, will answer and give you good things. That's the flow. What's He doing? Because if He's gonna, here's, okay, if you're gonna answer and give it to me, why am I keep on asking? Okay, okay. you feeling it? Okay. So here's my. I got two main things. Here's the first. Jesus knows Satan's main ploy in all believers' lives. Satan's main objective is to get you to not trust that your Father is good to you. That's the first sin. That's a sin in the garden. Eve... God said, you can't eat of that tree here because He knows. He doesn't want you to be like Him and that happy. He's hiding from you, Eve, something good. And she bought it. And we all, with Adam, fell. It's at the core of what He does. You've been praying for two weeks about that. Has He answered yet? (laughs) He's good, huh? Okay. That's what Satan does. Or he just adds the perennial ones. If your God is so good, why is there still suffering? Why is there pain in the world? Little children die of cancer. Tsunamis wipe out whole towns. Your God, He's good? That's Satan. You think about it. One of the guys standing there that day was named James, John's brother, son of Zebedee. Jesus invested. He's one of the twelve. He invested so much time into him. Jesus goes to the cross, suffers, dies, is raised. Within the next two or three years, this nuthead Herod kills James. He's gone. what what good was that investment Jesus what are you doing is everything out of control is your God good these are the kind of things he whispers in our ears and the problem of evil is too big to deal with ever thoroughly much less this morning but just to say this one basic thing about it if the whole world me and my wife and my six kids are all wiped out right now by a tsunami or cancer. God the Creator would in no way be unjust. It is amazing what I deserve and have not gotten. And we know biblically, the final end, because this is a lot of our prayer request, isn't it? The final end of suffering and evil, we know biblically is not yet. But that end is coming. It's coming when eternity dawns with the second coming of Christ. But we know until then, in God's sovereign providence, He allows it. So, what I want to do, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn for a moment to Romans eight. And I want you here is Jesus. How much? How much more? Come on, guys! How much more will your heavenly Father give you such good things, which you need? So, I want you to listen as I begin reading in chapter eight of Romans, verse thirty-two, of how much more the Father gives good things to His children. Paul writes, He, the Father, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up to become a human, to die, to be slaughtered, And punished for our sin. He gave Him up for us all. How much more? That's what He means. How will He not also by Him, with Him, because of Him, Christ, graciously give us all things? Now just go on reading. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Yes, do you understand? Oh, I can't go there right now, but that's the core of the gospel. Dirty sinners like me, who deserve an eternal hell, have been awakened to Christ, and I've been justified. He's wiped away my sin. He's taken this perfect human life of Jesus. And he says, that's what I put to your account. I'm justified. Who is there to condemn? There really isn't anybody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, who shall separate us, therefore? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? Aren't these the things that motivate our prayer lives? Or persecution or famine? hungry and there's nothing to eat or nakedness or danger or J- James son of Zebedee a sword now he, now he goes on his point here isn't 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 it great that you don't experience that because you're a Christian it's not his point at all his point is because you're a Christian you may experience more of it and his point is he will give you everything that you need And this life is just a vapor. Nothing, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Life, death, angels, principalities, things present, all the future, things to come. Nothing is what he goes on to say. Okay, so my first observation then, Jesus, how does all this fit together? Is that what we just have seen here, That's the biblical worldview. That's the biblical worldview that Jesus himself knows and is tenderly inserting this deep sense of security for our prayer lives. How much more? God will much more give you the Holy Spirit. Why is He doing this? Because in this life, and with the trials of this life, and in our yearnings and prayer and our crying and our screaming at times and our singing, you cannot continue, which is what Jesus has to do. Keep on going. Keep on. You cannot continue if you think that God is like a, a running back who's stiff-arming you. And trying to get to Him and He keeps pushing you away and He doesn't care. So Jesus is saying, it's not true. It's not true. Not true. True. Now, that's first. Here's the second thing. Okay. Hold that hopper there. That's that, that's the biblical worldview that Jesus is speaking into. Now. But still, how does it all fit together here, verses five through thirteen? How does what he says here, how much more? Your father, relate to what he told us about the prayer life. Keep on persevering and asking. Can okay, you get to feel the tension? Okay, he gave examples. your kid asks for an egg, what do you do? You serve him an egg. Okay? Then, God, may I please have an egg? An egg. So hungry Please can I have an egg asking and asking I'm seeking an egg Hello Please can I have an egg? How come so often those eggs are delayed? See that's the question. If God the Father is so loving, then why is he so slow? To answer, sometimes. That's why I think verses five to ten, the parable, the neighbor waking him up, pestering him. Jesus says, "Here it is. You do the same. Go on asking. Go on seeking. Go on." That's verses five. That's why I think it is right before verses eleven to thirteen, indirectly connected. He says, "Go on asking." Go on asking for God to hallow His name. Keep on asking His rule and His reign to come into your life. Keep praying for those loved ones, that person at work, for their souls to be saved. Keep on on relying on Him for the food you eat and feed your family, your daily bread, and protection spiritually from the evil one. Keep on. Don't give up. Then He shifts to how much more will God give good things to you who ask Him? So, at this point, that causes me to conclude, yes, therefore, what this text must be saying is that our Father sometimes wants us to continue on praying. And we don't see what we wanted. Because he purposes only after long seasons of persistent prayer to grant things. Okay, then why? Why does he postpone the answer to so many prayers so often? I think the answer is implied right there in verses 11 to 13. Okay. Jesus said our prayer life it will be like the guy going at midnight, knock, knock, don't, don't leave, keep going until you get what you need. So he says, go be like that guy. Then he says, our good Father, He will only give His children what's good for them. Okay, there you go. This is exegesis. That's a big word. Okay, this is, when you open your Bible, how you read the Bible. What are you doing, Jesus? What do you mean? Put those two together. I don't know what else to conclude but this. When God delays the answer, unless Jesus is wrong, when God delays the answer, He is willing that we prevail in prayer longer because that is the good that He's giving us. which must mean there is something about the, quote, go on asking, go on seeking, go on and on knocking. There's something about that that we need that is good for us. See, Jesus means for our yearning and our seeking and our pleading to be at the core of the life of the church. See, what at the bottom line, what really is what every Christian really is in need of every day? The answer is more and more infilling filling of God the Holy Spirit, of His influence upon us. We are in daily need, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're in daily need of walking in the presence of God. and That's the core of what Jesus is saying. That's why He ends verse 13. How much more Oh, the Heavenly Father give as you're knocking the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. It's no coincidence in the Gospel of Luke that He's already shown us in chapter 3, verse 21. While Jesus is praying, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Or that Luke will go on to say in book 2 called Acts, after ten days of constant upper room praying, the Holy Spirit fell, was poured out, and filled them all. So when you feel discouraged because God seems so distant and not caring for your particular needs during your prayer time, then you are to know the word, the truth of what we see here. You are to know and to trust Jesus' words that God is holding back, He's waiting precisely because you're pressing in. You're communing with Him. You're saying, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, please come on. You're worshiping he is at the core of what is really good for you. And He's too loving to deprive you of it. Much more may be happening in us and to us by our Father not immediately opening the door. So let's be a people let's be a people who go on begging in our lives on the door of heaven alone and together banging for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for His power for His gifts to operate in us to serve other people and all the while while praying rejoicing that persisting in prayer requests is itself a great, great miraculous work of God the indwelling Holy Spirit Father would you work this text would you work the truth of what our glorious Savior said in us this week, this month? Would you cause us to be more desperate and fervent and persistent as a child is toward their daddy, toward their mommy? Would you make us more comfortable to bang on your door? Oh, would you continue to fill us your sweet presence of your Holy Spirit that we would shine all the brighter in this world